All right, let's turn in our Bibles now to Psalm 84 this morning. 84th Psalm. Well, there was a husband and wife. They got up Sunday morning ready for church. Wife gets out of bed, gets dressed, and notices that as she's thinking it's time to go, she notices her husband hasn't even lifted a finger to get ready to go to church. So she says, honey, uh, hurry up, get dressed, we've got to go. He goes, I'm not going to church. And she said, what do you mean you're not going to church? That's right, I, I'm not going. She said, can you give me a good reason why not? He says, I can give you three good reasons why not. Number one, the church is cold and unloving and uncaring. Number two, nobody there likes me. Number three, I just don't want to go. And then he said, can you give me three good reasons why I should? She said, well, yes, I can, actually. Number one, they're not cold and uncaring. They're warm and friendly. Uh, Number two, there are a few who like you. (laughs) And number three, you're the pastor. You've got to go. So get up and get dressed. Now, for a lot of us, church was something you had to do. It was a prerequisite. It was a grind. It was something that was an obligation. Nobody looked forward to it as much as looked forward to it getting over with. Where you could get over with church and then go on to real life and have fun and play and goof off. And uh, even here, I've noticed that even though we have a, a... crowded parking lot and sometimes services that are overflowing like this one, I still will see people who come to nap. They come in and they kind of just find the chair, sit in it just about right, and then pretty soon, midway of the service, their mouth is open. And it's like somebody coerced them. Why are they here? Somebody coerced them to come. It's not something they look forward necessarily to doing. If you ask most people who don't go to church about church, they'll say, I don't go to church. It's irrelevant. It's unintelligent. It's outdated. It's boring. I even heard of a Sunday school class, a seven-year-old class, in which one young boy had the audacity during the class to interrupt the teacher and said, excuse me, could you hurry up? This is boring. And the little girl next to him stuck her elbow in his ribs and said, Shut up, it's supposed to be boring. (laughs) Now, when a person has been touched by God and their lives have been changed, their attitude changes even towards church. No longer is it, Man, I, I have to go and do my Sunday obligation. It's, I can't wait to go. When my wife first came to Jesus Christ at our church in California, she went to virtually every service every night of the week. Anything that was going on, singles ministry, drug and alcohol, no, I'm just kidding, but whatever was going on, she would show up at just to be fed. You couldn't keep her away from it. Well, Psalm 84 is a psalm that is crafted by someone who can't wait to hang out in the temple in Mount Zion in Jerusalem. To him, it's not boring. To him, it's not irrelevant. To him, it's exciting to go. The language reveals that. Not only is it it exciting to go, 
uh, being in the temple in Jerusalem, this guy gets excited about the very trip to church, the pilgrimage on the way to Jerusalem, which, by the way, was a walk, not a drive, not a taxi ride, but a long walk up to Jerusalem. And as I read Psalm 84 this week, several things popped into my mind that I was reminded of. One of them were the times I have been in India. And the first time especially as I talked to people and asked them where they lived and found out that many of them walked hours, walked on foot hours to be at that service that morning. And once they got there, I found out that the church service, one service, lasted no less than four hours. You weren't about to herd them in and herd them out for one hour. They want to be there for the day. They were not spoiled. They were very, very hungry for God. Let's look at the author. It's in the superscription of the psalm. To the chief musician on an instrument of Gath, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Remember these guys? We talked about them a few psalms ago. The sons of Korah were worshipers in the tabernacle later on the temple. It seems that there were two major families or branches of worship leaders, the sons of Asaph and the sons of Korah. Now, the sons of Korah, besides performing and working with the worship, also had assigned duties in the temple. They were gatekeepers or doorkeepers. Now, that's significant as you read the psalm. You'll see why. But uh, back in First Chronicles chapter 9, we read the Korahites, which is another term for the sons of Korah, The Korahites were in charge of the work of the service. They were gatekeepers in the tabernacle. Well, you're about to read the sentiments of a stoked gatekeeper, one who's absolutely jazzed about his position as a gatekeeper in the temple. Let's read it. Psalm 84. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out, for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They will still be praising you. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools, They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. O God, behold our shield and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. And I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Now, in the first two verses, we're introduced to the place of worship that he's longing for. It's the tabernacle, another term for the temple. They started out in a tabernacle. Later on, they moved to this temple structure in Jerusalem. So here's a guy saying, man, I long to be in your temple, O God. Your courts, I faint to be there. Question, what's the big deal about the temple other than it's a magnificent building? Why is this worshiper so excited about the temple itself? And it's a good question. Because Stephen, remember in the book of Acts, 
when he was talking to the Jews, reminded them, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. And even Solomon, when he was building the temple, said, who can really build a temple for God? Who can house God? Heaven and the heavens of heaven cannot contain you, much less this house which I have built. Then Jesus, in that conversation with the Samaritan woman, when she was arguing about the place of worship, and she said, Our fathers worship here on this holy mountain in Samaria. You Jews say it's Jerusalem in the temple. And Jesus said, Woman, the the time is coming and now is when true worshipers will neither worship in this mountain nor in Jerusalem, for the Father is seeking people to worship Him in spirit and in truth. So what's the big deal of the temple? Nothing really, nothing inherently awesome about the structure, except that it's a place where you meet God, and that is the value of it. Not that you can't meet God anywhere, but you meet God in a very unique sense. All of His people are gathered for the same reason. I've stood in some of the loftiest cathedrals in Europe. I've been in Westminster Abbey and St. Paul's Cathedral in London, the Notre Dame in Paris. Uh, I've also been in uh, huts in the Sudan in Africa made out of sticks and thatched grass churches in India. I've been in Thailand where they didn't meet in a building. They met in an open field. People just would gather and sit out in the dust out in the field. What's great about those places? Nothing, and, and, and it's not the places that make it significant as what is the purpose for coming to those places. And really, that's the heart cry of the psalmist. He's not crying out for the place as much as the one whose glory occupies the place. Look at the end of verse 2. He says, my heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. He wanted to meet God, not, wow, what a cool temple this is. It was meeting the living God. What makes a, a house into a home? You might be thinking, mom does. But the answer is those who occupy it. Otherwise, it's just a building. What makes it a home, what makes it that significant is the people who live there. And so an ivory palace or a crystal cathedral or a beautiful building is nothing without the one whose glory should occupy it and those who gather to worship in that place. It's like a body without a soul. You know, you could go to Hearst Castle in San Simeon, California, and be awed at the mosaics, the architecture, the pools, uh, the paintings. uh, Everything you could ever imagine is there. Or the Biltmore Estates in North Carolina, these old, classic mansions. But they're museums. It's neat to look at them, but so what? So he's going to the temple and his heart's cry is for God, intimacy with God. He's crying out for what all of us want. I want to meet with God. I want intimacy with God. And I guess that this desire all depends on whether or not you have a relationship with God or not. If you have a relationship with God and you love God, you'll love what God loves. And God loves his people gathering together. And you'll say, I can't wait to go to church. If you don't have a relationship with God, it is irrelevant and boring because the relationship isn't there. By the way, one of the foremost ways to gauge your heart is by the desires of your heart. What do you want? What do you crave? 
Jesus said, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The scripture says, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So what does your heart desire when you're alone and uh, you don't have to play spiritual with anybody? It's just you and God. What does your heart really crave? And if your heart really craves God, then your heart will crave the opportunities to meet with God and his people. And that all translates into what this guy's after. I'm after God. I want to be faithful to that calling. A pastor in his church was asked to define that word, faithfulness. What, it, what does it mean to be faithful? Because he tossed it around so much. And so he did. This is what he said. He said, all that I ask is that we apply the same standards of faithfulness to our church activities that we would in other areas of our life. That doesn't seem to be asking too much. The church, after all, is concerned about faithfulness. Consider these examples. If your car started one out of three times, would you consider it faithful? If the paper boy skipped Monday and Thursdays, would they be missed? If you didn't show up at work two or three times a month, would your boss call you faithful? If your refrigerator quit a day every now and then, would you excuse it and say, oh, well, it works most of the time? If your water heater greets you with cold water one or two mornings a week while you're in the shower, would it be faithful? If you missed a couple of mortgage payments in a year's time, would your mortgage holder say, ah, well, 10 out of 12 ain't bad? And if you attend worship meetings only often enough to show you're interested, but not often enough to get involved, are you faithful? I think based on that gauge... This son of Korah was pretty faithful, wouldn't you say? I can't wait to get there. Now let's move on to the next two verses, and I call this the peace of worship. We leave the place of worship, and we see what it yields, and notice how he puts it. Even the sparrow, verse 3, has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house, They will still be praising you. Here's the point. Even the common birds that can still be seen in that region are not driven away from the temple itself, from God's house. Now, what's interesting to me is the two birds this psalmist chose to include in the psalm. It wasn't the eagle. It wasn't the spotted owl. It was the sparrow and the swallow. Very common, not beautiful, not strong, not even valuable birds. In fact, it seems that in the scripture, the sparrow is looked at as a worthless bird. So much so that it would seem that young boys in Jerusalem would catch a few of these sparrows and for extra uh, spending money, they'd sell them. Jesus alluded to this when he said, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? They're not worth much. So even these valueless, weak birds can come in and find a place. And Jesus went on when he talked about that, by the way, and he said, Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing or a penny? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. I guess the point would be this. You may feel a sense of worthlessness. You might think, What do I have to offer? What good am I? I'm so weak. I don't think my life really has any value to contribute. After all, it's God. How can I contribute to God? God would say, come. 
I've got just the place for you. My altars. Intimacy with me. Closeness with me. Come and pour out your heart. Richard Foster reminds us, remember that just as a child cannot draw a bad picture, right, mom and dad? Your kid might draw something that, I mean, it looks geeky. But to you, it's, it's a masterpiece. Wow, that is awesome. I'll frame it. It's your child. And so he says, just as a child cannot draw a bad picture, a child of God cannot utter a bad prayer. God's heart is open and eager and waiting for us. We can just hang out with God, he said. We can just waste time with God. Not that we ever could really waste time with God, but you get the picture. Hang out with him. So the sparrow, a worthless bird, welcome. Then there's the swallow, and the swallow is a restless bird. It has short little wings, and it's like a bird on caffeine. It's always darting around from morning till nighttime. It's moving incessantly traveling until it's time to mate and raise young. When it's time to to have a family, it looks for a place to build a nest. And, And it stays there for a while. It stays committed to that new occupation of raising the family. And so this forms a picture of the soul coming to rest in God, a restless soul. Augustine put it best, he said, when he said, Lord, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee. It's a picture of a restless heart, a restless person coming to rest in God. No need to flutter. Are you restless today? So many people in our society are flirting here, darting there, moving here to find some meaning and purpose in life. God says, come and find your rest right here with me. By the way, too, swallows, when they settle down and nest, they start doing something brand new for them. They start singing. It is said that when they they build their nest, a a low-toned song becomes their mark. They start singing. And I thought of this verse when I read about a missionary couple from Moody Bible Institute, John and Elaine Beekman, who left the United States to minister in southern Mexico to a tribe called the Chol Indians of southern Mexico, a tribe that was up to that point unreached. They traveled by dugout canoe and mule pack to get into this tribe. For 25 years of their life with other missionaries, they translated the Bible, the New Testament, into the Chol language. Now today there's 12,000 Chol. It's a self-sufficient economically community. And uh, when they first came, those first few months, first years, one thing they noticed about the Indians, the Chol tribe, none of them sang They had no folk songs. They had no songs among themselves in any way. It wasn't a singing group of people. So that when the gospel was introduced and there were converts and also gospel songs were introduced, the new converts became known by the rest of the tribe as the singers. And today all the believers sing and write worship songs because they've got something to sing about. They've come to a place of rest, purpose, meaning. They sing their songs. Let's move on to the next few verses. This is the pilgrimage of the worshipers. You might call this their drive to church, but it's a long, long trek. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, and by the way, it's not Baca, it's Baca. This is not a Spanish term. There are none in the Bible. This is 
the Hebrew baka, which means weeping. We'll explain it in a minute. They make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength, and each one appears before God in Zion. Not everyone who wanted to come in those days and worship in the temple could just walk out their door and walk down the street and go to the temple in Jerusalem or get in their car. They all didn't live in Jerusalem. Most of the people were scattered through the little settlements around Israel. So to get to the temple was a long, long walk. In fact, it was required only three times a year to come to the temple in Jerusalem. Now, they still worshiped once a week in the synagogues in their local communities, but when it came to going up to the temple, three times a year it was mandatory. There was Pesach, or Passover. That was sort of the hallmark feast celebrating the deliverance from Egypt. There was Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks. We call it uh, Pentecost. And then there was Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles, in the seventh month, our, um, our fall, our September, October. Those three times it was mandatory, especially for all of the males, but if they could bring their families, great, and they would all gather in Jerusalem. And they would come by caravan, pack up the kids, pack up the wife, or in some cases in the Semitic uh, areas, the wives, uh, the animals, uh, the victuals, all of the supplies, and they would go together up to Mount Zion. Now, as they did, they had to go through some valleys, low points geographically. One of them here is the Valley of Baca. Now, Jerusalem is 2,600 feet above sea level. And if you're coming from the north and you're down at the Dead Sea area where it's dry, barren wilderness, you're at 1,290 feet below sea level. And you've got to make it to 2,600 feet above sea level. So it's quite a steep hike. It's a hard, hard valley to go through. Now, it mentions here the Valley of Baca. The word Baca comes from a plant that grows in the dry regions, the balsam bush. It's nicknamed the weeping tree because when you touch it, it exudes a sap. It feels moist like it's weeping, it's crying. And that's why some translations say as they pass through the Valley of Weeping or as they make it through the Valley of Tears, And so this becomes a poetic play on words. It describes a person on the way to worship who goes through a valley of weeping, a time of pain, a time of tears. That's life, isn't it? There's times of worship, and in between times of worship, there's sometimes pretty significant tearful valleys that we go through, dry spells. We even say that. Somebody will say, well, how are you doing? You go, well, I'm going through a a dry time, a valley in my walk. That's the idea here. Now, maybe in a literal sense, you've experienced this sometime. On your way to worship at the temple, the very trip itself is difficult. You get up in the morning, you're late, you stuff the kids in the car, you're short with them, get in, come on, we got to go. And so you go and you get a flat tire and you get out to change it and it's raining and so you get muddy and then you yell at your wife and you're all angry until you get into the parking lot and see the usher. Then you put on your little Christian smile, hi. God bless you. It's been a struggle just to get there. There's been just a little valley, a tough spot on the way to church. But more than likely, this is just the balance of life. There's times of great celebration where we get instructed in the word. We get our perspective uh, corrected as we worship. But then there's a lot of these in-between times, weeping times, the valley of Bacah. 
Now, it says they make it a spring. That is, true worshipers on their way up to worship won't let these little valleys get in their way or keep them back. It says they make it a spring. That is, the very hardship itself becomes a time of refreshment for them. If you go to Israel today, there's something you will notice as you drive through the desert regions. You, You would look out in a place like the Dead Sea area that is about 1,300 feet below sea level, where in the summer the temperatures can get up to 130 degrees. And you think, I see why this is called the Dead Sea. Nothing could live here. Yet you look out and you see these lush green farms. And what they've done is they have uh, developed the drip system, new ways of irrigating plants. And, and rather than xeriscaping the landscape, they plant stuff there. They make it thrive. And it's like a fulfillment of prophecy. The desert will rejoice and blossom like a rose. They've taken the very place that is barren and they've turned it into a verdant place of refreshment. And so the idea here is you're going through the valley. It's a time of pain and sorrow and you turn it into joy. You say, well, how do you do that? It's sort of interesting to me to observe Christians going through valleys. There seems to be two basic ways we approach it. Two basic philosophies, two basic theories of life that we as Christians have. One is called, let's call it the theory of compensation. Uh, Eternity will compensate for now. I'm going through a tough time now, but I know that heaven awaits me. It's going to be better later. Now, there's something good to that. It gives us hope to move on. Even Paul said that the pain and sorrow and suffering is not worthy to be compared with the glory. But it develops this kind of a mindset. I'm miserable now, but... I'll make it through with tight lips and clenched fists. If I just make it through, in the end it will be much better. And so, yes, you'll make it through, but you'll make it through like this. There's a better way. And I think it's outlined here in this psalm. It's not the theory of compensation, but transformation. That is, this very spot itself that is so difficult and dry and hard and creates tears, I'm going to find God in it. I'll turn it into a pool into a spring. And notice it says that. They make it a spring. It's a place of refreshment. They're not grimacing as they go up to Jerusalem. It says they go from strength to strength. You see, a faith that lives only in the future is not a very efficient faith. It has to do something now and transform us now. So the secret is to turn the affliction into a place of refreshment. Example. Remember Jacob? Jacob the conniver, Jacob the guy who lied and cheated and stole his brother's blessing, lied to his father, lied to his brother, stole the blessing, and now he's running from his family. He's in the middle of the desert in Israel because his brother's going to kill him. He's running through the wilderness. It is so barren. That night he lies his head on a, a rock, lays his head on a little rock. That's pretty barren. No Motel 6, no Hilton. No tabernacle, no altar, nothing to remind him of God. Goes to sleep. And at night he has a dream, a vision, this ladder going from earth to heaven. And the angels of God descending to earth and ascending back into heaven. Communicating earth and heaven in that place. He wakes up the next day and this is what he says. 
He says, God is in this place, and I knew it not. There's a lot in that statement. Not God was one time, a long time ago, in this place. God is here, and I knew it not. I know it now, but I didn't know it yesterday. And then he named that place. You remember what he named it? Bethel. It means the house of God. This is the house of God. This is the place of worship. In this place, God is. There's a secret there. When you can look at this valley of Baca you are in, instead of saying, uh, God, could you airlift me to the next mountain peak, please? I don't like valleys. To say, God, are you here? Do you have something for me here? Let me turn this into a pool, into a place of refreshment, into the house of God. Let me worship you here. There's secret. You go from strength to strength. In the 1600s, Samuel Rutherford said, When I am in the cellar of affliction, I look for the Lord's choicest wines. Remember the disciples on the Sea of Galilee? It was the night when the storm was so violent they thought the boat was going to sink. They started crying out. Now, if you could interview the disciples, if you could paddle by in a little boat or hovercraft and say, How are you guys doing? They'd say, get us out of here. We're going to die. We're going to drown. God was not to be found in their situation. And then Jesus comes and walks on the water and says like, hey, how you doing? Peace. Don't be afraid, it's I. It's interesting. The very thing they feared, the sea, was the vehicle that God came to them on. He didn't come out of heaven with a bright flash and a vision. On the very sea itself that they thought would kill them, they found God. Have you ever traveled through uh, South Dakota, any of you, and and, uh, seen an interesting uh, landmark called Wall Drugstore? It's in a little town called Wall, South Dakota. It has about 800 people living there. On a good day in the summer, 15,000 people visit this drugstore. I've been there. It's very interesting. Here's the history. Back in 1932, when it wasn't really prudent to buy drugstores in the middle of nowhere, when there was a drought... When the temperature soared over 100 for several days and weeks, when grasshoppers came in and destroyed the local crops, the couple that owned that store, their names were Ted and Dorothy Husted, they were believers in God, asked this question, how can we get people into our drugstore? They came up with an interesting method. They went 25 miles in each direction on the main road, put up a huge billboard, free ice water. Big deal. Free water, wall drugstore. And then they'd move 10 miles and 5 miles. You're almost there. To your destination. Free water, wall drug. Now, druggists have been giving free water for generations. This is the first couple that said, let's advertise it. It was just novel. They got so excited about this, they went to Albany, New York. Put up a sign. Can you imagine? Wall drug, only 1,725 miles ahead. They did this all over the country. I've seen signs. And as you're driving, the signs are like every few feet when you almost get there. It's like, what is going on? Your curiosity is so peaked, you've got to go. And no joke, you go in the summer, thousands. And they say on a good day, 15,000 people will go there. Hey, come on, Waldrug, come on out, man. It's the place. I'm in the middle of nowhere. Come on out. God's here. Here's the point. Pain is inevitable. Misery is optional. 
You're going to have valleys. You're going to have pain. You're going to have weeping. But the misery is an option. You can say, God is in this place. You can say, I'm in a God-forsaken place. It's up to you. Bring God in or leave him out. Let's move on to the last and final point, and that is the preference of worship. I love the way he puts it. O God, verse 9, Behold our shield and look upon the face of your anointed, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper. Remember, that's the job of the Korahites. The sons of Korah were gatekeepers. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Now, that doesn't sound like much of a job, does it? Sounds like an uneventful, behind-the-scenes, boring job. Excuse me, sir, what do you do here in this beautiful temple? I'm a gatekeeper. Oh, really? How nice. Think of it this way. And this is what I think he had in mind. The gatekeepers were the first ones there. They're the first ones to arrive. They were the last ones to leave. They got to stay longer in the very place where people would gather to worship. They got to come and linger in that place that reminded people of God. Their desire, his desire, was not to straggle in late or leave before the final song, but to come and linger, stay there, get it all. I'd rather be a doorkeeper. It's a preference. Now, it's also a task because you've come to worship, but at the same time, you have a job, and your job is to be a doorkeeper. And here's an interesting point, and I think it's valid. Part of worship is serving God. But our tasks take on a whole new complexion when there's a relationship. A normal, ordinary task that you'd say, what a drag, is awesome. It's a joy when you have a relationship. Example, let's say there's a bachelor who's a slob by nature. Now, this is probably a very rare example that never really happens, but let's just go out of the way and suppose there's a guy who, by nature, living alone, is a slob. He, he puts his clothes wherever, pants in that room, underwear in that room, just throws it wherever. After all, he knows where he throws them so he can find them later. And, oh, he'll wash the dishes when there's none left and he needs a dish. That kind. What would motivate him to take a whole new approach to those tasks? Answer, a girlfriend coming over for dinner. Suddenly, he's motivated to dust, to clean, to, to change those little things in his life. And it's not like, man, I have to do this. She's coming over. i got to make it look great. What happened? A relationship happened that changed the outlook and changed the whole meaning of the ordinary task. So that any menial task done for God can be awesome because it's for God. And he's saying, I would prefer the menial task in God's house than to have some great position apart from God in the world. I think he would be saying this, the worst that God could ever give me is better than the best the world has for me. It's quite a statement. It's quite a statement. I think of Gabriel. Now, now that's a great job, to have the job of the angel Gabriel. Wouldn't, wouldn't you think? His job was to be positioned to make the first announcement that the Savior has been born. I'm sure he waited all of the uh, eons and eons. He says, I can't wait for that Bethlehem incident. 
I get to tell these shepherds, the Savior's been born, the heavenly announcement. But he seems to be honored to do menial tasks, to be just an errand boy from heaven to earth and give a little message to Daniel, give a little message to Zacharias later on, a little message to Mary. It's an honor. It's not like, excuse me, that's beneath me. I'm Gabriel, you know. It's like, hey, this is for God. This is awesome. And I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than dwell in the tents of wickedness. What is it that prompts wealthy businessmen to, though they have lots of disposable income and could be off doing anything they want, to say, you know, I'm going to teach a class at church, or I'm going to be an usher, or I want to help people in this area and give them counsel. What prompts a doctor who could be in the finest hospital in America to give a month or two out of his life every year and serve in a mission hospital where he gets nothing? It's this attitude, isn't it? A doctor came out of a surgery operation in Korea, sweat coming all over, beating up on his forehead. His hands were shaking with fatigue. He'd been in there so long, performing an operation in a sweaty, dusty operating room in Korea. As he came through the doors, an onlooker said, Excuse me, doctor, back in the United States of America where you're from, how much money would you have made for that operation? He said, Probably ten, fifteen thousand dollars Well, excuse me, doctor, how much will this woman give you? What will you get here? He smiled and said, just her gratitude and my master's smile. I guess people who do these kinds of things believe that God called us not to be celebrities, but to be servants. I'd rather be a doorkeeper. After all, it's God's house. Look at the... Uh, 11th verse for just a moment. The second part. No good thing will God withhold from those who walk uprightly. In other words, if you keep your focus in life on God and your heart's desire truly is pleasing God, He'll take care of you. This is the same principle translated in the New Testament by Jesus. Seek first the kingdom of God and everything you need or everything else will be added to you as well. You keep your main focus on God, and God will take care of providing for you. You're his child. Did you hear about the small businessman who always worried? He's a worrywart. He could pay his bills. He could keep his quotas. He made all of his deadlines, yet he always worried about everything. A friend of his came to him one day and said, You know, bud, you ought to just hire somebody to worry for you. I mean, you hire other people to do other things. And he was was tongue-in-cheek. It was... He just said, you worry so much, just hire it out. Well, he saw Bud a week later, and there's Bud whistling, laughing, not a care in the world. And his friend said, Bud, what happened to you, man? Uh, You had the world on your shoulders last week, and you're carefree this week. He said, well, I took your advice. I hired somebody to worry for me. I said, you did? Well, what are you paying this guy? I said, I'm paying him a million dollars a year. A million dollars a year. Bud, you, you don't even make a quarter of that in your company. How are you going to pay him? He goes, I don't know. It's his worry. <laughs> Interesting approach. You belong to God, don't you? You're more valuable than sparrows, aren't you? Sparrows are welcome. Sparrows are taken care of. God promised to take care of you. You're his child. 
Let him worry about it. Isn't that a great attitude? God, I'm your property. Your reputation is at stake. I'm trusting you. I'm going to focus on serving you and doing your will. You take care of the rest. You worry for me. One final note on this. Doorkeepers are so important because they're there for other people, right? What's the function of a doorkeeper? To welcome people in, to welcome people out. They're there to help others in their worship of God. Is your life a life of worship? I can't wait to worship God, to serve God. If it is, eventually you'll be called upon to serve others. When you serve God, part of that is serving His kids. And you might say, well, I don't know if I want to serve God's kids. God's a lot more lovable than His kids. Well, I understand. believe me, I understand that. But part of loving God is loving His children as well and serving His children. There's an old French fable that talks about a personal servant of the king who was taking a walk in the forest one day. There he is walking out by the palace into the thick woods. He was called the servant of the kingdom. That was his nickname. And as he was walking, he fell down a hill. When he woke up, there was the proverbial magic cup. And he rubbed it, and out came the proverbial genie. And the genie said, it's not by accident that you fell here and did this. You've worked hard all of your life. I'm going to grant you one wish and one wish only. But be very, very careful what you wish for because you only get one. So the guy thought. He said, you know, I have worked hard all my life. I've served others all my life. I'm called the servant of the kingdom. That's all I do is I wait on this guy hand and foot for everything. I'd like the tables turned. I'd like to be pampered. I'd like somebody to serve me. I'd like to have my meals cooked. I want others to serve this man. Sure enough, when he got back, the doors opened for him. His meals were cooked for him. His clothes were pressed and given to him. He wasn't allowed to do menial tasks. And for the first month, it was cool. It's kind of fun, kind of novel. The second month, it was irritating. The third month, he'd had quite enough. And he walked back out to the forest, found that little genie, and said, take it back. I don't want this anymore. I'm tired of this. I find no fulfillment at all in being served and pampered. I am a servant of the kingdom. I want to serve. I'm sorry, said the genie. You made your wish. I can't reverse it. You got to do something, he said. I hate this. This is miserable. I'm the happiest when I serve others. And he said, I'd rather be in hell than not be able to serve others. The genie said, where do you think you've been the last 90 days? God's called us to love Him, to worship Him, to serve Him, and part of that is serving others. And that's the motivation in coming to church. It's coming to Him. It's not, well, I'm going to come to church because there's some cute gals that hang out there. Or I'm a single gal and I might meet a boyfriend. And I meet people all the time who come to church, I think for nostalgia's sake. They remember going to church as a little child and... Well, I haven't been to church in a long time. And I meet people who say, Yeah, I've come to your church. And you know what? I'm going to start coming to church. And I always tell them, I'd rather you come to Christ. I want you to come to church, but there's no good to come to church and play church. I want you to come to Christ and have a relationship with Him. Then there's a real reason to come. To meet with Him when His people meet with Him. My prayer would be that 
if you have wandered from Him or if you've come to church all your life but never met Him personally, never turned from your sin and turned to Jesus Christ, today you'll do it. That today you'd go to our prayer room after the service. You'd receive Jesus Christ into your heart and long for Him as the psalmist did. Father, thank You for this time and and for this message, this psalm of a man who couldn't wait to get to the place where you were worshipped, all because he wanted to meet with you in a very unique way to perform his service and to perform his service for your people. Grant us, Lord, today a new resolve to make you our object of worship, the one that we long for, cry after in intimacy, to walk with you, to not play religious games, to play church, to walk with the living God and be people of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.